You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hey everybody, so great to be with you today. Welcome uh, to Mosaic. I especially want to say everybody, uh, say hello to everybody who may be watching this message at Mosaic South today. So I want to give them a big hand clap and a shout. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you stand? Because if you're watching Mosaic South, we want to tell you we love you. Look right behind that camera right there. Come on, Mosaic South. We love you. We're thrilled to be here with you. Now sit down. That's enough. (laughs) Hey, next week we're going to have a standalone message about the power of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a Sunday on the church calendar. It's called that the week before Easter. But today I'd like to close the series that we've been in for the last five weeks by trying to put it all together in a different way. If you've been here, you know that we've been on a little bit of a kind of a journey. We've been leaning into Jesus' claim, his amazing claim, John chapter 10, that he came to give us something called zoe. It's a word that means abundant life, excessive life, uh, a more than we even need kind of beauty and life and energy and vitality. And we've been saying that the best way to have the life of Christ is to live the life of Christ to the degree we're able with the resources that we have. And the life of Christ, as we've seen, has been marked by a number of spiritual practices which empowered his ministry. In other words, we'll summarize here, Jesus lived a life of principled practices that fueled miracle moments. And he showed us how to do the same, and that's what this series has been all about. And if you've been paying close attention, which I'm sure you all have, you'll notice that all of these practices we've looked at during this series, practices like communion, Sabbath, fasting, worship, lament, celebration, that are all taken from a certain source. And that source, of course, I make a rhyme every time. I'm just kidding. It's what's called the Bible. Yes, the source is the Bible or the Christian scriptures. You, you can find all those practices just by reading your Bible. But here's what I would like to say to you today. Reading the Bible is so important. It is. If you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot not read your Bible. But right now, I want to take us beyond that for a few moments today by saying this. Reading your Bible is not the key to abundant life. Reading your Bible is not the key to abundant life. The goal of the Christian life is not reading the Bible. Because, come on, anybody can do that. The Pharisees read the Bible and missed Jesus. The devil can read the Bible and twist Jesus. And skeptics of all stripes can read the Bible and ignore Jesus. See, reading the Bible isn't the goal of our faith. Now, if you're new here, or or, or you're not a Christian, or you're super skeptical of God, faith, church, all that, I get that. But let me tell you, you could not have picked a better Sunday to be here, because you're kind of eavesdropping into something I think is really important to talk about. So what we're doing. Reading the Bible isn't the goal of the Christian faith, and reading it alone won't create abundant life in you. Because we, after all, we don't just need love in a book. Come on, somebody. We need love in our hearts. Love in our hands. We don't just need power on a page, but power 
in our lives. The goal of the Christian faith is not just the word of God being read, but the word of God being lived. Lived. Now, if you're like me at all, you're saying, Morgan, I'm nothing like you. Okay, fine. Whether you are or you're not. Let me tell you, I think that you might love living in Texas for a number of reasons. And here's why I love living in Texas besides getting to be here with all of you. I love living in Texas, perhaps my number one reason, is because of Texas barbecue. True. All apologies to my vegan, vegetarian, and pescatarian friends for the following illustration. And all apologies to other states and their barbecue because their, your state's barbecue, friends, falls immeasurably short of ours, let me just tell you. And by the way, you know that Texas has the market cornered on great barbecue when you travel outside Texas and all other states' barbecue refer to their barbecue as real Texas barbecue. Like you'll travel to Virginia or Maine or Oregon and you'll see real Texas barbecue being advertised. Now... That's got nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to flex for just a minute. It felt kind of nice. But a few weeks ago, our family took a little road trip, and we were out, and we happened to come upon a barbecue festival. Now, Carrie told me that was probably a generous name to call such a small thing, but I'm going to call it that nonetheless. A barbecue festival, at which point I, because I love it so much, I made everybody stop and get out and go down to it. And there were all kind of, we got down, all kind of meat smokers there, smoking their brisket in a little park, jewelry booths, leather booths, goods, selling potholders, uh, trinkets with little southern sayings on it, like, bless your heart. And I love you like biscuits and gravy, you know, stuff like that. But to get down into the festival, because it was happening in this little park down under a bridge, we had to walk down several flights of stairs. And so we went down the steps and we went through a little gate and we entered the world of the barbecue festival. And it was great. It was fun. There's a band there playing some great live music. And our family had, I think, a good time killing a few hours. But how many of you know, old preacher's term there, how many of you know that entering The world of barbecue is categorically and fundamentally different than allowing the world of barbecue to enter you. There's a difference between reading the signs to get to the barbecue festival and allowing the barbecue festival to get inside you. And so that day, because I knew this truth, I allowed the barbecue festival to get inside me. I stood in line. I purchased a brisket sandwich. It was slow-cooked, smoked meat. It came on a bun. And I drenched it in some amazing sauce. Thank you very much. And I took a bite and another and another. And I finished that barbecue sandwich, bun sauce, and meat. And at that point, I had not just entered the world of the barbecue festival. It had entered me. I went from just being around it, smelling it, to metabolizing it internalizing it and allowing it to become, I hope, a permanent part of me. (laughs) See, going into a world is one thing. Allowing that world to get inside you is just another. One way leaves you only smelling a little bit different. hmm? The other leaves you feeling different, living different. Now, off the coast... The west coast of Turkey, nation of Turkey, no, not Turkey sandwich, Turkey in the Aegean Sea is a little Greek island. You've probably never been there, but you probably have heard of it. The name of the island is called 
Patmos. Patmos is an island, again, off the west coast of Turkey. And late in the life of a first century, first century follower of Jesus, a man named John, one of Jesus' first disciples, was exiled to that island. The Christian legends suggest that John was exiled to Patmos after the Roman emperor of his day, Domitian, tried to execute John by plunging him into a vat of boiling oil, but that didn't kill him. That's the legend. Now, whether that's true or not, the facts are that John was banished to the outer rim of the empire far, far away from Jerusalem, from Athens, Rome, Corinth, or any other place where the Christian faith of John could harm Domitian or his Roman gods. Oh, but as history shows, the God of history had other plans. Because while John was on this island, now an old man, John received a series of visions we now call the book of Revelation. He recorded them. He wrote down these visions. He's passed them on, and they've come to us today. And while John was on this island, on Patmos, receiving these visions, an angel appeared to him. Now, angels, as mentioned, uh, mentioned about that, shouldn't be strange to us because Jesus, after all, come on, repeatedly confirmed the existence of angels and demons if we say we believe, which we do. In a supernatural God, the existence of other supernatural beings isn't too far-fetched to claim to believe in. But, back to the text, which you're about to read, an angel appeared to John in Revelation chapter 10. Here's the story. John says this, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud, nice robe, with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Pause. So far, so good. A mighty angel comes down. He's holding a scroll. That's an ancient version of a book. Shouts like a lion. Then a voice from heaven says, John, don't write down anything yet. John, don't create a new scroll. Verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the angel is saying this, John, I promise you, though it doesn't look like it, I, I promise you, I swear by heaven, though it doesn't seem like it, though it doesn't look like it on the news right now, that God has history under control. He promised the same thing back to the prophets, Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and he's promising it again through you right now, John. Again, so far, so good. But then something strange happens. Verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So the angel says, John, don't make a scroll. Take the scroll. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it 
and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay. Here in Revelation 10, John, the follower of Jesus, doesn't just read the word. He doesn't just write the word. He doesn't even hear the word. No, John, the follower of Jesus, takes the word and he eats the word. John goes from having the word of God on the outside of him to having it on the inside of him. And this is a picture of our call as Christian people. In order to have the abundant life of Christ, we can't just keep God's word on the outside. No, no. We must take it and receive it on the inside. God's word to us isn't just like a barbecue festival that we enter, though we do enter the the world, world of God's word, but it's more like, and this is good news, it's more like a brisket sandwich, barbecue plate we consume. God's word, let me tell you, isn't just for reading, it's for eating, for eating. The energy your body needs doesn't just come from smelling the food, does it? No, it comes from eating the food and the life, the Zoe life your soul needs doesn't just come from sniffing around God's church, sniffing around God's word, but taking it down into the very center of you, of your life, of your habits, of your family, of your word, of your very attitudes where it can be digested, metabolized, made a part of you and then put into practice. You go to God's word, you sit with it, you consider it, you chew it in your mind, and you say yes to it over and over and over again. What happens when we do that? What happens to us if we actually do what we're told here, in in a way, and eat the scroll? Well, three things happen to John. Always convenient for the communicator. Yes, three things happen to John. And I think these three things also happens to us. We're going to look at them first. When we eat God's word, it's sweet to our mouths. Why is this? Well, this is for a number of reasons, but let me just give you one. And this one reason is one verse found in another book John wrote called 1 John. It's three words, one verse from 1 John 4, 16. God's word is sweet in our mouths because of this one verse. God is love. God is love. Isn't that nice? (laughs) That's nice. Isn't that sweet? Yes. Listen, when you take that into you, the thought that God is love and he loves you, it's so sweet, so nice, so affirming, and it should be. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a painful trial, a low moment, down to my very last nerve or nub or whatever. You know, this verse will come to me. It'll make its way into my mouth, and like that first bite of a pancake dinner at the end of a five-day fast, when I taste it, I'm revived, revived, it's sweet. And by the way, that thought, that claim that God is love does not come from just anywhere, I wanna tell you. It comes specifically, originally, from the Christian faith. The claim that God is love does not come from Buddhism. It doesn't come from Hinduism. It doesn't come from Islam nor does it come from atheism, in which, of course, there is no God. And therefore, if atheism is true, there is no such thing as real, true, transcendent love. There are only chemicals lying to you, basically. But when the Christian faith came into the world, the gods 
of the first century were fickle. Gods were capricious. Gods were lustful and conniving and insecure and backstabbing. But Christians said, no, 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 no. Not only are there not many gods, but there is only one God, and that God is love. And God is love is sweet to our mouths, and it should be. So let me try to sweeten the sweetener for a moment. Add a little cream to your sugar. Because it doesn't just say, you'll notice, that God is loving, but he is love. And here's why. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, came to reveal to the world that God is not unipersonal. Oh, but he is tripersonal. Three persons, one God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Spirit. That means before the cosmos was ever created, before any star was ever spun, you've got one God from all eternity. Three persons loving one another. The Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Spirit. The Spirit loving, honoring, glorifying Father and Son. Each person loving, serving each other in constant fellowship and community for forever. Therefore, the universe was not made... Because God was bored. Didn't have anything better to do. Or he needed to be honored or worshipped or glorified. He's not insecure like Mars. Petty like Zeus. He was already loved in perfect community for forever by far greater persons than you and me. Nor was the universe made from an act of power. No, it was made from love. See, God isn't just loving. He is love. And that, that is sweet. At his core, at his center, he is love. And when we take that into us, and when we taste that, it allows us not only to be more loving ourselves, which I hope it does, but it also allows us to do this Christian community. And here's what I mean. If you're here and you're like, for the first time, second time, you're like, wow, look at all these different kind of people. Mosaic's so diverse. It's like heaven on earth, you know. Why is this? Here's why. It's because we have tried to eat the scroll of a diverse God, tri-personal God who is love. We have God the Father giving boundaries. God the Son giving grace. I'm generalizing here, of course. God the Spirit giving power, not just one person, two persons, but all three. And therefore, the diversity within the Trinity models, communicates, and radiates the diversity we're called to express. And this is why every other faith system around the world, apart from the Christian faith, has a cultural and linguistic epicenter. And it grows mostly by birth and far less by conversion. But Christianity does not have one cultural center. It's always moving. There is no one right Christian culture. It doesn't have one language or translation at the center. And in one sense, grows only through conversion. Because while one can be taught the words of Jesus, one can read the words of Jesus, one can walk around the world of the barbecue, Christmas, or Easter Jesus festival. To become a Christian means you take into you the bread of life. Jesus himself, through the act of repentance, which yields a mystical, supernatural union. See, God isn't just loving but God is love, and the diversity within the Godhead allows us to be a diverse, loving people. Isn't that sweet to your ears? Your answer is yes. Okay. 
It was the first service. I hope it is to you as well. It's sweet in our mouths. It's sweet in our lives. And you should go taste that every day. God is love. He loves me. Yes. But that's not the only thing that happened to John when he ate the scroll. What else happened? You remember. He said, but when I had eaten it, I swallowed it. (laughs) My stomach turned sour. Oh, no. Why is this? Here's why. It's because God is in only love, but God is also holy few chapters before. In Revelation chapter 4, same John, same writer also writes this. He wrote, because he saw something, holy, 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 in case you missed it the first two times, is the Lord God Almighty. And when, hear me, the ancient holy trinity in the Bible comes into contact with what writer, pastor, theologian Eugene Peterson has called the modern trinity of our holy wants, holy needs, and holy feelings. It can turn our stomach sour. We get a stomach ache, a little heartburn, react negatively not to God's love, that goes down real nice, but to his holiness, which calls us to exist under his loving rule and authority and not the other way around. John showing us this, God is holy and we exist For him, he does not exist for us, nor can he be pulled down onto a t-shirt. Come on. He can't be shoehorned onto a bumper sticker. You understand? Nor does he fit nicely and neatly into a fleeting, fading, passing, 21st century American-only political party as if God is too big for that. He is too holy for that. The ancient Holy Trinity confronts our modern Holy Trinity and it turns our stomach sour. It's disagreeable to us that God should insist on being who he is, which is God. Our holy wants tell us no one should stand in the way of what I want, no matter how much it hurts others. Our holy needs say, surely nothing can be wrong with any of my choices. I have needs after all. And our holy feelings come first above any other words like truth, duty, responsibility. Oh, but modern holy feelings can't be the truest truth. Our feelings can't be God. And therefore, if you look into God's word and it only and ever confirms what you already want, what you already need, what you already feel, you're at that point, I'm at that point, like a religious modern twist on the Greek myth of the man who looked down into the river and became so enchanted with what he saw, he never looked at anything else. In other words, if you only see what you want in God's word, you're a kind of a narcissist. Now that was kind of harsh. So let's back off and talk about Star Trek. And if you don't like it, sorry. But of all the old... TOS, the original series episodes, there is one that takes the cake for ridiculousness and silliness. And since all the old episodes are ridiculous and silly, this one's the greatest one of them all. Go think about that. But anyway, there's one episode with a character in it named Harry Mudd. And Harry Mudd has a terrible, nagging wife. And to get away from her, he flees to a distant planet filled with, naturally, because it was the 1960s, beautiful women robots who serve him only ever night and day as he sits on his throne. And this is high concept science fiction, as you can see. 
And none of these beautiful women robots ever contradict him. They only come out and say, yes, Lord Mud. Yes, dear, what would you like? Yes, Lord Mud. And he even has these beautiful women robots make a robot copy of his wife. He keeps in a closet next to his throne just to remind himself sometimes of what he's not missing. (laughs) He'll bring her out. He'll push a button and she'll begin her nagging all over again. Harcourt Fenton Mud, have you been out all night? Have you been drinking again? Harry Mud, where have you been? And when he can't take it anymore, he pushes a button and she powers down going, you, 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 and goes back behind a wall. It's paradise for him, you see. But when the intrepid crew of the Enterprise arrives, he is beyond desperate to get off of the planet. He begs them and then tries by force to steal the ship and get away. Why? It's because he... He's discovered he doesn't have a single real personal relationship. Why? His wife. Because he's done away with anyone or anything that could ever contradict him. In seeking to escape any authority, boundaries, or offense in his life, in putting his holy wants, holy needs, holy feelings first, he's done away in the end with the one thing he really needed, love. In rejecting any boundaries, he also rejected the very force he was looking for, love. Now, when many of us approach the Bible, we think of it like Harry Mudd's wife. Have you been doing that again? Where have you been? Have you been out drinking all night and we avoid taking the Bible into us because we sense a sour stomach coming on? Oh, but that says way less about the Bible, way more about us. But what if, what if it were the very presence of capital T truth, of something that is rather someone, the presence of someone that could contradict you, that made you the most human and most loved, that brought out your full self in the end. Think about it. When you see Jesus of Nazareth, full of God's word, day in and day out, you read the gospels. When you read about him, do you think, now there goes a miserable unhappy, violent fundamentalist? Or do you think, there goes the ultimate human, yes, fully God, but the ultimate human loving at every turn, not in spite of, but because of his practice of filling his stomach, his inner being with the word of God. Listen, when we eat the scroll, when we take into us both the love and the holiness of God, it changes us. And now, to use an overused word, it empowers us to do something incredible. The third thing happened to John. When we eat the scroll now, we can see things no one else can see because we will be someone no one else can be. I'll say it again. We can see things that no one else can see because we will be someone no one else can be. Look what he was told. He said, then I was told, now you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, kings. See, John's called to have here a prophetic ministry, a visionary ministry, a future-facing voice to the nations. And so God showed him things that no one else had seen, but only because John had the right diet. And up to a point, I want to tell you, the church of Jesus is called to do the same and be the same, and so are you and so am I. We're called to be like John, the prophetic conscience of a nation, prophetic conscience of a city or a people, and we can only be that when, when we, as the people of Jesus, stand both for love and against sin. 
when you and I both humbly forgive our enemies and we insist that sin and injustice of all kinds cease for love of God and love of neighbor. And when we live that out, because we first take it into ourselves, now the world begins to change. Now nations begin to change. Now kings begin to sit up and listen. See, as we eat the scroll, now we can see things no one else has seen. And we call the world to a better future. Can you see it? Can you see today a city less poverty? Hmm? A city more generosity. A city with better treatment for all of its citizens regardless of class or age, ethnicity. Can you see a city with less crime? More respect for public servants because they themselves are worthy of it in the first place. Can you see the city being better because the church of Jesus is there? Can you see this? You see more. See, to see things no one has seen, we've got to become someone no one else has become. And to do that, we have to eat something very few people are willing. The love and the holiness of God's word. See, Morgan, I know how John could do it. I kind of like to do it, but I get a little nervous. I know how he did it. He had a big angel standing in front of him barking at him. I could do that if I had that. I, he could see that. What do I need to see? Let me tell you, you can take it in. Eat this, the word, the scroll, when you see this. You can eat the scroll when you see that the Bible, the Christian scriptures, aren't primarily a map that give you guidance on where you already wanted to get to. They're not primarily a tool you use to shape your life like how you wanted to live. They're not merely nice moral principles that only work when the world is fair. Hmm? But you take the Bible in rightly when you see that the scriptures are in the end primarily about a single person and his story, not yours. It's Jesus, Jesus, who said yes to his father's will. And for the sweetness before him, for the joy before him, he came to earth. But obeying his father perfectly, it didn't just turn his life sour. It actually killed him. Jesus ate the poisoned apple of humanity all the way back from the garden till now. All the sin of eternity even took into his body and it killed him. And yet he was resurrected from the dead, showing even the worst things he faced only made him more glorious and powerful and it made it all sweeter in the end. Why did Jesus do this? Here's why. It's to show you he went first and you can trust him when he asks you to take into you into the center of you, his word. And to show you, you can trust him when he says he wants to give you abundant life and to trust him when he shows you how to access it by embracing, yes, spiritual practices, which creates space for the presence, the power, and the person, and the peace of God to meet you. And now you can see things no one else will see because you'll be who no one else has been. The exact person God has made you to be. Not a pastor, not a celebrity, not a politician, not even your parents. Well, so would you today, would you eat the scroll? It's kind of what I'm asking you. Like not just walk around it, not just sniff it, not even just read it, but would you eat it? Not just into the world of the festival, but take the world of that festival inside you. As a kind of a response to this, if you'd like to say yes, I'm going to ask you actually in just a moment to read a prayer with me. Okay, it's going to be on the screens. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand. We're going to read this together. If you're nervous about it, like, man, I'm praying something I don't know. It's all good. There's nothing new in this. You've already heard all of this. All right. So again, to close our time, would you just stand on your feet right now? Right with me. 
no matter where you are, you're watching at home, online, south, etc. And pray this with me. Here we go. Three in one God, I come to you today not just wanting to walk around you, shop around you, look around you, but take you into my very center. You have said that you sent Jesus so that you could be our God and we could be your people. You have said you long for your glory to be in our midst and that you long to be our Emmanuel, our God with us. Help me today to cherish your word, to slow down and taste your word, to allow your word to become something that changes who I am. God, I don't just want to know about you. I want to know you. I'm asking for your abundant life to flow out of me and into the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.